Deuteronomy chapter number 11, and uh, uh, this is not a series of messages. We're just kind of preaching on the same kind of thing a few times, amen? And uh, my fear of commitment has brought me to the place where I no longer call it a series of messages, amen? You call it a series and then stop halfway, then people say, well, I wonder what happened to the other two messages. Well, they might have been terrible, and you ought to be thankful the preacher didn't preach them, amen? So uh, instead, we have just uh, been sort of preaching and letting the Lord lead us, and uh, we'll preach uh, in this area till he's done with us, amen? And uh, we just want to mind the Lord tonight, want to mind him every night, amen? And uh, that's the key to it. I, I'll tell you, um, I'm, not, I, I'm not a fountain of, of experience or wisdom or any of those things. I'm still a novice in many ways, and I guess always will be. But I will tell you one thing I've learned in almost 12 years pastoring is you're far better off letting the Lord lead. Uh, I've tried it before and I've made a mess of things. And uh, But if you'll let him lead, by the way, that's true for your life as well. You'll let him lead. He'll do more with your life than you ever could. And uh, so we just want to mind the Lord tonight. Deuteronomy chapter number 11. I'd like to be reading in verse number 1. Deuteronomy chapter 11, uh, verse number 1. Word of God says, Therefore... Thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. And know ye this day, for I speak not with your children, which have not known and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his stretched out arm, and his miracles and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and unto all his land. And what he did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses, and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord hath destroyed them unto this day, and what he did unto you in the wilderness until you came into this place, and what he did unto Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben, uh, how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their households and their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. But your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Therefore shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that ye may be strong and go in and possess the land, whither ye go to possess it, and that ye may prolong your days in the land, which the Lord sware unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that floweth with milk and honey. For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from when she came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land whither ye go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly, from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul, and bind them for a sign upon your hand, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And ye shall teach them to your, your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in this place. It is a precious place that we've come to tonight. It is a place that you love, Lord, for you bought it with your own blood. And we've gathered in this place because we know you and we love you and we desire to hear from you. We need encouragement from your people, Lord, and, and we need the songs of praise sounding in our hearts. But Lord, above all else, we need your word penetrating our hearts and lives and dealing with us specifically, deliberately regarding our lives. And we'll be sure to thank you for what that will accomplish, Lord, for we know that your word does not return void. You send it into our hearts and into our ears, Lord. It will do a work. 
Lord, if we allow it to, it'll do a, a holy work. And if we resist, it'll do a hardening work. But we won't be unchanged by your word tonight. So help us to approach it with the right attitude and reverence. Help us to with meekness receive the engrafted word that we may glorify you in our lives and look more like Christ when we're done tonight. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, over the past couple Sunday nights, we have followed a sort of theme in the book of Deuteronomy. And it is centered on the usage of a phrase. We find it tonight in our text in verse number 16. It is the phrase, take heed. The Word of God in verse 16 says, Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Let me remind you a little bit about what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. It is the book of the repetition of the law. What is contained in Genesis and in Exodus and Leviticus and in Numbers is in many ways summarized and and concentrated and, and presented to us again, particularly the giving of the law is in the book of Deuteronomy. And that's what the name Deuteronomy means, the retelling, the regiving of the law. As they stand in Kadesh Barnea on the cusp of entering into the promised land, Moses is getting ready to depart. He's going to die as the Lord had told him that he would. And the children of Israel will be led by Joshua into the land of Canaan, into the land of promise, into the land of victory, into the land of the place of the will of God. But before they go, uh, the Lord wanted to remind them of some things. Let me say there is great power in remembering what the Lord's done in our lives. That's the reason. We talked a little bit about it this morning. It's the reason that a good chunk of the book of Psalms is dedicated to rehearsing the greatness of God in the lives of the children of Israel. Why is that? Because we're so prone to forget what God has done in our lives. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, they are reminded of some things. The story begins when they are in Egypt and they are purchased by the blood of the Passover lamb. Their freedom and liberty is purchased by the shed blood of that Passover lamb. And they are reminded that they are a purchased people. They don't belong to themselves. They belong to the Lord. He has paid the price for their souls. He has paid the price for their lives. And they are reminded that they don't belong to themselves anymore. I often hear people say in this culture of modern day Christianity, well, my life is my own. I'll do what I want. I'll make my choices. I'll live my life the way that I want. You couldn't say anything more unchristian than that. If you were to recite uh, prayers to Baphomet or to Satan, it wouldn't be as sacrilegious as it is for a child of God to say, my life belongs to me and I am my own. I'm sorry, friend, if you've been born again, you were bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not belong to you anymore. You belong to the Lord. So they are reminded that they were purchased people. Not only that, they're told about how that God spared them that night in Egypt when they deserved to die just as much. Hey, listen, God didn't kill the firstborn in Egypt because they was Egyptians, and God didn't spare the firstborn in, uh, amongst the Jews because they was Jews. The reason He did it was because of the blood that was applied. Had the Egyptians been willing to put the blood on their doorposts, they would have been pardoned as well, but they were unwilling to come to the blood of the Passover lamb. I'd like to say God is no respecter of persons. But he, sure enough, is a respecter of processes. He don't care what's in your bank account. He don't care about your background. He doesn't care about your ethnicity. He doesn't care about your voting record. Uh, all he cares about is whether you have had the blood applied in your life. That's what curries with God. That's what matters to him. And so they are reminded that on that night, not because of themselves, but by the grace of God and the blood of the Passover lamb, they were pardoned. They were forgiven. They were let loose and set free from the land of Egypt. So they're reminded that they are a pardoned people. And then Moses recounts how that God has taken Israel to his own bosom. He, they are called the apple of his eye. And how that God has, has raised them, has liberated them, and then elevated them to a position that no other nation has ever enjoyed. And they are reminded that they are a peculiar people. That they are not to be like the nations around them. They are to live differently than the nations around them. And I'm reminded that, hey, in the New Testament, we are told that we too are a peculiar people. And we ought to be zealous of good works. 
God saves a man and He changes him and He makes his life different and He makes his want to different, his desires different, his appetite different, doesn't mean that that old man still doesn't want those old things. But it means now you've got to deal with a new man who don't like those old things. You can't go back and enjoy them the way you could before you got born again. You can go back, hey, a dog can return to his vomit, but it sure don't taste as good as it did when it was fresh and new. A pig can go back to a waller, but it ain't the same once he's been washed clean. And when you get born again, you can still go back to those things, but you ain't going to enjoy them the way that you used to. Hey, those old things are done passed away, and all things are become new. They are a peculiar people. We likewise are a peculiar people. And then they are reminded that they are journeying on a promised path towards a promised place. That God has given them a home and a place that they can go to And by the promise of God, they can through victory claim that place. They are reminded that they are a promised people. But when we come to uh, this passage in Deuteronomy and the others that, that offer this warning of taking heed, we are reminded that the Israelites are commanded to be a prudent people. Hey, listen, I, if somebody told you when you got born again that that means you didn't have to live right, I don't know who lied to you, uh, but they sure enough did lie to you. If you were told that liberty is the same thing as license, if you were told that grace is permissiveness, somebody misinformed you. God didn't save you and give you eternal salvation so that you could turn around and trample on it. He did give you eternal salvation. Somebody say amen to that. But not so that you could trample upon it, but so that you could walk in the victory of it. He didn't, he didn't save you to get you out from under the law. He saved you to get you above the law. He said, he told to the, his disciples, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, how could their righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Because the righteousness of the Pharisees was superficial only. They were whited sepulchers. They were beautiful on the outside, but within they were full of dead men's bones. Now, that don't mean that God saved you to make you alive on the inside and dirty on the outside. He saved you to make you alive on the inside and clean on the outside. And so we are commanded to be a prudent people, to be cautious, to be diligent, to be vigilant, to be sober in the way that we live our lives. And it is in keeping not only Old Testament but New Testament doctrine that there are some things we should take heed about. And so on ten separate occasions, the Lord commands the children of Israel to take heed in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what does it mean for a person to take heed? There's three things we could say about that. One, to take heed means to give attendance to a matter. If you're telling someone to take heed, uh, oftentimes you might be instructing them that there is something that they need to do. You're saying, don't neglect this thing. Take heed that you do this thing. We're coming into tax season. And a lot of people better take heed that they pay their taxes. Amen? Uh, If you don't take heed, then the government might take your head. Amen? And uh, if you think they won't take it at the point of a gun, you just don't pay it. They'll show up, and they won't be showing up with candy canes in tow. Uh, They'll come for it. Amen? Uh, So to, to take heed, it means to give attendance. But then number two, it means to give reverence to a man. So often when we tell someone to take heed, we're saying, do this thing. But often in that is sort of wrapped up the idea of, as you do it, be respectful of this matter. Very often if you tell someone to take heed and it is not an active instruction, it will be a cautionary or a passive instruction. What you're saying, as is the case in our text tonight, when he says, take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived. He's not saying, take heed and do this. He's saying, take heed and make sure this doesn't happen because it's dangerous. And woe be to them that allow this in their life. There are some things in our life we better take heed to. Uh, the, uh, somebody asked me one time if I had any phobias about things. And I told them, I said, I don't. Uh, the, a phobia is an irrational fear. There are some things we ought to rationally fear. Amen? A person cannot have a phobia of snakes. Because everybody ought to be afraid of snakes. Somebody say amen to that. Now, if you got a phobia of bunny rabbits, maybe you got a phobia, amen? But if you got, and people say, well, I got a phobia of drowning, that ain't a phobia. Everybody ought to be afraid of drowning, amen? And so, uh, a phobia is something irrational. Somebody asked me, have you got any phobias? I said, no, the only things I'm afraid of is things that it's good sense to be afraid of. There are things that make sense to take heed about. So it means to give reverence to a matter, but then I would say it means to give diligence to a matter. Very often when you tell someone to take heed, you're not just saying do this, you're saying do it well. Pay attention. Be careful in how you do this matter and how you carry it out. And you say, well, preacher, which is it? Well, I think in our text, probably the second is the one in the most focus. 
But really, I think all of these sort of scoop up and, and roll into one these ideas. And what it means is to be cautious, to be reverent, to be diligent, to watch out, to pay attention. It's commanding and exhorting us to prudence in our lives. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the first one. And, and they've already been warned by the time we come to this passage to be, uh, to be prudent, to take heed in the matter of secular relationships. Now, let me just make this passing statement. I won't re-preach that message. But let me just say, we're going to have to have secular relationships. You're probably going to work on a public job. If you don't do that, you're still going to interact. You're going to go to the grocery store. You're going to go to a restaurant. You're going to have people that you have to deal with. You're going to have a banker that you have to deal with. You're going to have secular relationships. God does not begrudge us those secular relationships. But we better make sure that we're being vigilant about those relationships. We better not go into them blind. We better recognize the pitfalls that are there. And then last week we looked at this thought of being diligent, prudent, of taking heed in the matter of steadfastly remembering. And last week we looked how in chapter 4 they were reminded about some things that they had seen and they were reminded about some things they had not seen and they were reminded about what they sealed the day that they entered that covenant with the Lord. Well, this evening I want you to notice again verse number 16. Let's read it carefully together. The Bible says, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. I'll preach to you tonight on this thought. Take heed in the matter of straying religiously. Now, when I use the term religion, I, I mean in the sense of the worship of the true God. And Moses here exhorts the people, they're getting ready to enter a land of rank and rampant paganism. They're going to be faced on every hand with new, strange, and altogether false gods. And God wants them to understand how dangerous and how easy it would be when they enter this land where they are surrounded by all these different gods how easy it would be for their heart to be drawn away, for them to turn aside, for them to cast off altogether the worship of the true God and follow after these false gods. Now, somebody's probably sitting there thinking, oh, it's going to be one of these messages. Preacher, that's good, but now what kind of idolatry am I in East Tennessee going to get involved in? Can I tell you this? Hey, idolatry is more rampant today than it's ever been. But it is very rarely, at least here in the West, is it summarized in the idea of the worship of, of idols or, or little figurines that are placed on a, on a, on a shelf. The Roman Catholics are the exception to that, of course. They pray to idols and things of that sort. And I, I'm not, boy, I'm about to get into trouble here. Let me just say this, safety comes from the Lord. And when we're worshiping anything to protect us and keep us safe, we're worshiping that instead of the Lord. But certainly, idolatry often does not appear in that conventional sense. But can I tell you, idolatry is alive and well in the church in the West today. I, I tell you what it looks like. It, took, it looks like uh, not the worship of Moloch, but the worship of money. It, it doesn't look like the, the worship of Zeus, but it sure enough looks like the worship of leisure. Uh, it, it doesn't look like the, uh, the worship of, uh, of uh, some false god. You could name any Mercurius or, or Jupiter. You could name any number of gods. But it looks like the worship of self. We still have idolatry today, son. We have just streamlined it and made it more attainable and available for the average person. And so it is just as likely that we today allow our hearts to be drawn away from full, total devotion to the Lord and to be dragged away and dragged along and refocused upon other things and other priorities. Anytime a man puts anything before the Lord, he's got an idol in his life. And that idol can be something that is wholly irreligious. That can be something that is totally sacrilegious. Or very often it could be something that otherwise would be religious. But we've allowed it to take the place of Jesus Christ in our life. And so Moses warns the children of Israel. And we likewise find a warning here for our lives. Now, when we read our text, there are three basic portions that are presented to us. The first is in verses 1 down to verse number 15. And it's the Lord talking about what He desires, has done, and desires to do in the lives of the people. 
Now let me remind you, the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. You know, one of the greatest bulwarks against idolatry in our lives, one of the greatest safeguards against idolatry in our lives is just being reminded how good God has been to us. Can I tell you, if every other one of those gods were real, they still wouldn't be as good as the one we serve. If everything, the world, hey, listen, even if money could solve most of your problems, it couldn't solve your eternity problems. Uh, listen, even even if the emptiness of, uh, of illicit relationships, even if it could give you comfort for a moment, it couldn't give you peace in your heart. I'm here to tell you tonight that only the Lord can give us what we need. Only He can. And so He reminds them of how good He's been to them. And then second, we find a portion of Scripture from verses 16 and 17 where He warns them about the dangers of letting this happen in their life. And finally, in verses 18 through 21, He gives them a word of how to avoid this. So let's notice these passages tonight and let's uh, let the Lord work in our heart. First thing we see in verses 1 down to verse number 8 or uh, 15 is a word of witness. And He begins to talk about the stakes in this matter of serving the Lord. Can I tell you, listen, when we walk away from the Lord, we walk away from a lot. It is not harmless. It is not a, a, a net zero, some zero equation to give up on the Lord. It's going to cost you some things to give up on God. I think very often one of the things the devil and the flesh and the world convince us of is that we get to keep all the good things we enjoy about the Lord and just add to them all the pleasures of sin that it contains for a season. But i got news for you. That ain't the way that it works. There are some things you're not going to lose. Praise God, you ain't going to lose your salvation. Praise the Lord, you ain't going to lose the Holy Ghost. Although you might not, if you're going to live in sin, you might not be praising and rejoicing over that in a few weeks from now. Amen. Uh, when He's waking you up at 3 a.m. to twist your heart and your soul, you might not be enjoying it. But there are some things we aren't going to lose. But there are some things that it's going to cost us. Notice he gives this word of witness and he begins by showing what a great responsibility that this generation had in light of the things that they had seen. He is bearing witness to what they have seen and he is bearing witness to what God has said. Notice the first thing he points to is a word of witness about the capability of God's power. Look in verse number 1. He says, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and keep His charge, and His statutes, and His judgments, and His commandments always. And know ye this day, for I speak not with your children, which have not known, and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand, and His stretched out arm. Let's pause there for a moment. Remember who he's talking to. He is dealing with that first generation that had seen those things. They had been children when they were in the land of Egypt. They had spent 40 years. So by the time you come to the close of this wilderness wandering, you have three groups of people. You have those that were full-grown adults before they came out of Egypt. And all of them perished in the way except for Joshua and Caleb. And then you have those that were children when they came out of Egypt. And they had witnessed what God had done. And then you had a generation born in the wilderness that had never seen any of these things. And Moses says, I'm keenly conscious of who I'm dealing with here. He says, I'm talking to a group of people and you've seen what God can do. He goes on to say, you've seen his miracles, verse 3, and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and unto all his land, and what he did unto the army of Egypt, unto their horses, unto their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord hath destroyed them unto this day. Not only that, you know what he did unto you in the wilderness until you came into this place. He's talking about the provision of God in their life. And what he did unto Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their households and their tents and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. He said, you've seen what God does with idolaters. Verse 7, he says, but your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Now, what is the sum total point of what he's saying here? How can we consolidate this down? How can we, how can we concentrate it? He's saying we're dealing with people that have seen a lot, so they owe a lot. How many of you know the New Testament tells us uh, that much is given, much is required? Hey, there's going to be some beaten with few stripes, some beaten with many. And the, and the chief distinguishing, the chief uh, enumerating character there is not what people had done, it's what people had seen. Can I say, we are going to be judged far more harshly 
regarding the, the benefits and advantages than we've had, than we even will over the disobedience and actions that we've taken. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying, listen, it's bad to go out and live a godless life, but it's real bad to go out when you've had enough God in your life that you should have turned to Him, but you choose to instead cast that off and go out and live in disobedience. He is trying to frame this in terms of how much judgment they can expect. He's saying, we ain't dealing with a bunch of, uh, 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 of rank pagans in heathen darkness. We're not dealing with a bunch of people that don't know who God is. He said, we're dealing with the only people that have ever seen Him do these things. I would say, listen, let me just caution you and me. Hey, listen, we've got a lot of blessings in these days that we're living in. We have more technology at the tips of our fingers. and Somebody will say, well, yeah, who cares about technology? With that technology comes great abilities and advantages. Uh, we have more preaching at our disposal. Uh, we have more access to the Word of God. We have more access to study helps and, and the studies of the Word of God. We have more opportunities to go out and witness and to win people to Christ. We have, listen, you can't, in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, you can't take a, a left turn when you should have took a right turn and not end up in a Baptist church. We have great benefits in these days we're living in. But understand that comes with great responsibilities. We're going to have to answer to God one day. And listen, I, the, I would say this as our Lord warned them of Capernaum and Chorazin one day. Hey, woe unto you, Capernaum. It'll be easier in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah. Had they had the preaching that you've had, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He's trying to get them to understand. They've seen, they know. He gives a word of witness about the capability of God's power. Then look at verse 8. He says, Therefore shall ye keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that ye may be strong and go in and possess the land whither ye go to possess it, and that ye may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed a land that floweth with milk and honey. Now notice this next phrase. For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from when she came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the land of Egypt was a land of irrigation. It was a land where the uh, the earth and the, the land, the landscape, was not necessarily... You get outside of the Nile Valley, the fertile valley of the Nile, and there's not much. It's a desert. It's a wasteland. But the Egyptians long ago learned that if they dig pipes, if they would dig irrigation canals and pathways, that they could uh, increase the productivity of their land. When he says they watered it with their foot, he's talking about them carrying water or digging trenches. And he says the land you're going to isn't like that. He talks about them having to sow the land. In other words, they were planting things in places where nothing had ever grown and making it grow. He says the land you're going to, it's not like a land like that. He says the land whither ye go to possess it, verse 11, is a land of hills and valleys. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. Now what's Moses getting at here? Well, first he says, uh, uh, remember what's at stake here. You know who God is. You've seen the capability of God's power. Then number two, he says, don't forget what's at stake here. The place you're going to is a wonderful place. And he's saying to them, don't forget about the competence of God's plan. He's saying, didn't God lead you out of Egypt and provide for you and give you everything you needed? Hasn't God watched over you all these years? And hasn't he promised you that the place he's taking you is far greater than anything that you have ever experienced? He's saying, you have seen it proved that God's plans are the best plans. And because you've seen that proved, don't for one minute think that this current plan is not just as wonderful as the last plans. He's leading you to a place that is far greater, more lush, more productive, more fruitful than you could ever imagine. He's saying, don't turn away from God because His plan is the best plan for your life. He's taking you to a place where you're not going to have to work like slaves. He's taking you to a place where He's going to provide for you. He's taking you to a place where He watches over the land. And you've seen that God always keeps His promises. Can I tell you, you say, Preacher, why should I guard my heart against uh, straying from the Lord? Because when you do, you're giving up the greatest things that there are to have in life. Uh, a wise man once said, He would be a fool who would not trade that which you cannot keep for that which you cannot lose. 
God's way, God's plan is far greater than you could ever come up with. Uh, listen, any time a man chooses them over God, they're always at best settling for second best. And let's say very often, if you've got bad sins like I do, you're probably settling for the 472nd versus the best. God gives His best to those that leave the choices with Him. And any time that you take it upon yourself to govern your life, you are forfeiting the absolute best and always choosing something lesser. So he points to the competence of God's plan. Look at verse number 13. We see a third thing. He says, And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in His due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil, and I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Let me say, not only does he give a word of witness about the capability of God's power and about the competence of God's plan, but he gives a word of witness about the condition of God's promise. All of these things were contingent upon them obeying the Lord. Now, let me give you just a little crash course in uh, Old Testament typology. I know we very often think of the idea of Canaan as being indicative of heaven. We sing, you know, and I, and I love it. I don't mind singing it. I enjoy it. But we'll sing, you know, to Canaan's land, I'm on my way, like we sing tonight. We'll, we'll sing, you know, Canaan land is just in sight. Uh, we'll sing, you know, uh, when we sing where the soul never dies. We, we, we very often equate Canaan with the idea of heaven. But do you know that's biblically not correct? Canaan was never a picture of heaven. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because all they did when they got there was have to fight. Amen. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm trying to do all my fighting down here in Baptist churches so that I don't have to do it when I get up to heaven. We get up there, we're going to be done fighting. Amen. Uh, anything, it's going to be like, it's going to be like daddy's look. Whenever, anytime we fuss up there, Lord's just going to look. And that'll be it. We'll just hush. Amen. We'll be done with the fighting. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. There ain't going to be no fussing. No, when they got to Canaan, you know what they found? They found a bunch of enemies. When they got to Canaan, you know what they found? They found a bunch of idols. You know, when they got to Canaan, what's the, what's the fact? they found a bunch of giants. These are all things that aren't indicative of heaven. But do you know what Canaan is a picture of? Canaan is a picture of the life of victory that God desires for the child of God. We could call it the victorious Christian life. It is, it is a picture of pursuing God's will. And very often it requires fighting. It requires sacrifice. It requires diligence. It requires discipline. But oh, how rich and sweet it is when the enemies are vanquished and victory is gotten and we can rest securely knowing that God reigns in our heart and in our land. It's a picture of that life God desires for us. And so remember what he's saying here. Saying you're getting ready to go in this land and this land can either be a blessing or a burden to you. It can either be a place of grace or it can be a place of, of giants. You're going to this place and it's all going to depend on whether you'll live in obedience to me. I'll tell you tonight, listen, our salvation is not predicated on or dependent upon our willingness to obey the Lord in, in our life. I, I'm glad, listen, if it was based on whether I served Him, I would have lost it a thousand times over. Amen? Uh, it's based upon His promise to us. But do understand this, the, God, the life that God desires for you, victory, is absolutely conditioned upon our willingness to obey Him and to let Him lead and govern in our lives. We want that victorious life. It's going to come from surrendering to Him. And so He reminds them there are some conditions to these things. You can't go in the land of Canaan, live any old way you want, and think you can live there. That really is the problem with most of our Christian life. We get, I mean, we stick a toe into Canaan. We have a moment where we surrender to God and give God victory in our life. And we're there for just a moment. Then we say, now I want to live like I've always lived. And we wind up getting kicked right out the door. Wind up going back to that life of defeat, discouragement, going back to that life of disobedience and disheartening things. And, and we just go through this vicious cycle over and over again. I mean, just make a few little baby steps and then all of a sudden right back to where we were before. Why is that? Because we can't live in the land of Canaan the way that we lived in the land of Egypt. It don't work that way. We can't live in the land of Canaan the way we lived in the wilderness. We're going to have to live in a different way. So first we see him talking about the stakes that are at hand here. And he gives a word of uh, witness concerning them. And then in verse number 16, we see the statute that he gives. He says this, Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived. 
and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. If the first portion of our scripture gives us a word of witness, here we find a word of warning. What he's saying is this. Here's how it's going to happen if it's going to happen. Listen, I can't tell you what temptation is going to come down the pike next. I can't tell you what pitfall is setting ahead of you in the next quarter mile. But I can tell you this. When it comes, this is what it's going to look like. When it happens, it happens. There may be differences in the particular... But the same process, like Groundhog's Day, works out over and over and over again in the Christian experience. And so he warns them about this in their life. What does he warn them about? Well, the first thing he warns them about is the deception of the heart. I'm fascinated by verse 16. I see so much in there that it's so easy to gloss over. Notice first off, he says this, Take heed to yourself that your heart be not deceived. You know what that tells me? It tells me that every life of disobedience to God begins not with an action, but with the heart. It doesn't begin on the outside. It begins on the inside. He doesn't say, take heed that your steps be not diverted. He doesn't say, take heed that your back be not broken. He says, take heed that your heart be not deceived. He says, the problem is not a matter of our steps. It is first a matter of our soul. It is a matter of our heart. Notice the way it begins is with seduction, that your heart be not deceived. We allow our heart to be drawn away from God before we ever allow our steps to be drawn away from Him. We allow something to win our affection, something to work its way into our priorities, and all of a sudden, once that thing has got its hooks good and deep into us, it becomes too important in our life. Very often here in the day we're living in, and particularly here in the West, the things that become idols in our life are very often not things that are intrinsically wrong. Often it is a matter of mislaid proportions and priorities in our life. It's not that it's wrong to love those things. It's not that it's wrong to engage with certain things. But we've allowed them to become too important in our life. Can I tell you this? Hey, listen, God expects a man to work a job. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. A man doesn't take care of his own home. He's worse than an infidel. He's denied the faith. There's nothing wrong with working. God honors an honest day's work. But if we allow that to become more important than the Lord in our life, it can become an idol. God commands us to love our children. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't just suggest it. He commands it. I believe. I've looked. There's been moments in parenting where I've had to check. And I'm saying this, hey, listen, God God commands us. We're commanded to love our children. But children, your own children can become too important. They can become more important to you than the Lord. Your grandchildren can become more important to you than the Lord. Hey, listen, God expects us to, uh, to, to do certain things and, and we have certain responsibilities and duties in our life that God does not begrudge. But any of those things, we can allow our heart to become too fixated on those matters and to rob away our devotion from the Lord. So it begins with seduction. He says that your heart be not deceived. And then what happens? Then ye turn aside. Now often when we think of turning aside, it is much less focused on what we're turning to and it's more focused on what we're turning away from. He's describing someone that's on a correct path but has now deviated out of that correct path. And you know what happens? The first thing that happens is we fall in love with something in our life. And then that thing demands of us that we choose between it and the Lord. Then we make an active decision to turn our affection away from the Lord and onto this matter. Can I tell you, the devil's not going to let you serve him and serve God. I know sometimes we look at what the Lord says in the book of Matthew when he says you cannot serve God and mammon. And we sometimes lay that at the feet of the Lord. We say, well, God's not going to let us serve the world and serve him. But can I tell you this, the world ain't going to let you either. We're starting to see that in the day that we're living in. Hey, listen, we're starting to see open, uh, avowed hostility towards the things of God by a secular global world system. And they're proving they're not going to let you keep your Christianity if you're going to bow the knee to them. You're going to have to choose. The devil's the same way. Hey, listen, he won't let you live like a Christian and enjoy the fruit of sin's pleasures for a season. No, he's going to make you choose just the same. And so what happens? Once we are placed in that crisis position, we must choose. We invariably, because our hearts have already been stolen, we turn aside from him. And then notice what it says. We see seduction and we see strength. But then he says this, that your heart be not deceived and ye turn aside 
and serve other gods and worship them. I'm going to say a little bit about the worship here in a moment. But, you know, that's a little bit backwards. If you stop and think about it, here's how we think of this matter of worship and service. We think to ourselves that we serve something because we worship it. We think of it in terms of, I worship the Lord, and therefore I believe He is worthy of my service, so therefore I serve Him because I worship Him. But notice that's the inverse of what's described here. Rather, you worship it because you serve it. Can I tell you, when you start to serve the interests of this world, it won't be long and you'll start worshiping this world. Before a man ever becomes an open and avowed idolater, he first uh, sells out his life to the world system. He begins to walk like the world and talk like the world and do like the world and think like the world. And then when he gets to the place that there's no discernible difference between himself and somebody that is entirely worldly, somebody that is godless, he says, well, what's the point in going to church anymore? I'm just a hypocrite. And he walks away from the Lord. Well, how did that happen? It didn't begin one day when he was happy and in church and shouting and worshiping and doing business with God. And then he woke up and said, you know, I don't love God anymore. It's not how it happened. First, he allowed his heart to be turned. Then he allowed his affection from the Lord to be distracted away. Then he began to engage with and serve the things of the world and the flesh. And pretty soon, he got so hooked on those things that he said, what's the point in pretending anymore? I'm just going to quit pretending to be something that I'm not. In other words, we see service here, serving. You'll begin to serve other gods. And they served gods even before they worshipped those gods. They went into the land of Canaan and the pressures of their neighbors the pressures of their environment caused them to serve those gods before they even really believed in those gods. But we're living in a world today that is operating through the forces and levers of pressure. Pressure is being applied and placed on the people of God from every angle. It's amazing how sinister an implied threat can be. And that's what we're seeing in the day that we're living in. We're living in a day where we don't have a world system that's looking at us and saying, hey, you better quit being a Christian or I'm going to crush you and destroy you. Instead, we're living in a world that's going to smile at you with a toothy smile and say, hey, that's a great life you've got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> hey, that's a great Christianity you got there. It'd be a shame if that ruined your financial soundness. It'd be a shame if that got your kids took away. <laughs> they said it just the other day, didn't they, up in Canada, uh, whenever they was dealing with this trucker convoy. Uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, he, he got up and he said, hey, we're just fearing for these children's lives. Wouldn't it be a shame if these kids got took away? Hey, buddy, you want to talk about something sinister, wicked, straight out of the pits of hell? People up there just standing trying to fight for their freedom to make a choice. Hey, they ain't trying to make nobody take a vaccine. All they're doing is trying to keep from them being forced to take a vaccine. And then some wicked, petty, childish, uh, ugly, uh, tyrannical man like that to look up and say, Hey, that, that's great freedom you got there. It'd be a shame if it cost you your kids. I'm telling you, that's how this world system is going to be. It's not going to be open and about you're a Christian, I hate you, I'm going to destroy you. It's going to be, well, you can keep doing that if you want, but it's going to mean your credit's going to be wrecked. You can keep going to church if you want to, but it's going to mean we're going to take the kids away. What a shame that would be. And so there's all these pressures being applied. And in the land of Canaan, they had all these social environmental pressures being applied. And they began to say, wouldn't it be easier just to bow the knee? Wouldn't it be easier just to kiss the ring? We don't really believe in all this, but wouldn't it be easier just to go along to get along and not have to deal with all these pressures? But if you don't think that's a world we're living in, you better open your eyes. People are saying, well, I don't know about all this, but I guess I just better do it anyway. I don't want to deal with all the headache of it. Begin to serve other gods. And when you begin to serve other gods, pretty soon you'll start to worship them. You don't serve them because you worship them. You worship them because you're already serving them. I see uh, seduction, strain, serving. And finally, it leads to slavery, doesn't it? leads to slavery, and worship them. Now they're in bondage to him. So he warns them about the deception of the heart. Look at verse 17. He says, And then, when you do this, the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit. He warns them about the displeasure of the Lord. He says, You can't live this way and think that God ain't going to have an opinion about it. It's amazing. We, ha we have imported wholesale passive aggressiveness into Bible Christianity. I'm going to live any old way that I want, and if it upsets God, why is He being such a stickler about things? That's called passive aggressivism. Is doing something you know is going to make somebody mad, and then pretending to be so scandalized when they get mad about it. Hey, listen, if I come up and hit you in the mouth, I can't look at you and say, "What you so upset for?" 
But you know, we do God that way. God's been abundantly clear in His Word about the things He expects out of us. And then we live in disobedience. And then when God chastens us, we say, oh, God's so mean to me. Oh, hey, listen, God told us exactly what was going to happen. We live in disobedience. He's going to be displeased with us. Uh, He warns him. He says, the Lord's wrath will be kindled against you. And what's going to happen then? He's going to shut up the heaven that there'll be no rain. How can God bless a life of disobedience? What does that say about Him if He blesses a life of disobedience? He says, and then that the land yield not her fruit. So he warns about the displeasure of the Lord. And finally, he warns about the destruction of their lives. He says, lest you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. He says, you want to live there? You want to enjoy the fruit of it? You're going to have to live in obedience. Uh, listen, there, there is a whole industry designed around the fact of trying to, to do an end around, an end run around, skirting around the matter of discipline and obedience in the Christian life and to try to substitute it with, with nothing but, but Eastern mysticism, self-help, guru, gobbledygook nonsense prepackaged into, into contemporary self-help mantras. There's people make millions of dollars a year selling books. It's always funny to me, man. You see these self, uh, these uh, church growth gurus. Isn't that always funny? Uh, it's always funny to me, Brother Charlie. They're still writing books about how to grow churches. Think about that one. It's like the it's like the guys that make the sell the books on how to get rich on real estate. Can I tell you how to get rich on real estate? Write a book about how to get rich on real estate and sell it to folks. <laughs> or own BlackRock. Those are the two choices, all right? Own stock in BlackRock or write books about how to get rich selling uh, real estate. You really want to get rich, learn how to write books about how to write books about getting rich in real estate. Amen. We can go as deep as you want down this rabbit hole. How did we get there? What was we talking about? The uh, <laughs> you say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this: we have all we have all this stuff written about and centered on the idea of how to how to feel good, how to have the self affirmation and feel better, live your best life now and your second best life then, and all this nonsense. You know, all that is based upon the idea of trying to skirt around what is the fundamental tenet of victorious Christian living, which is this. You don't have the capacity to have victory in your life. Christ has given you victory in your life. And so if you want victory in your life, you have to yield your autonomy, yield your personage to Him. Allow Him to govern your life. Because if you're governing your life, you're going to lose all the time. But if you let Him govern your life, He only ever wins. I understand if we made a self-help book out of that, it'd probably be about four pages long. We wouldn't make much money. And that's why they don't write books about it. We've already got a book about it. And it's better than anyone else could ever write. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. We want our life to be what God desires for it. We've got to live the life that God desires for us. But if we do, we can be assured that we can enjoy that victory. So we see the uh, the statute given, a word of warning. And we have seen the stakes that we have here. It's a word of witness. And then finally, and I'm done, look at verse 18. He says, therefore, now listen, the therefores are there for a reason. Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And ye shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up Thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days, I love this phrase, as the days of heaven upon the earth. We have here a word of wisdom regarding the solution. And can I just summarize? Some of y'all said, I sure wish you would. It's this. It's this. What does he command us to do? Number one, to sanctify your life with the word. He says, you need to lay up these words in your heart. That's where your affections are. In your soul. That's where your consciousness is. Your conscience, your awareness. He says, bind them upon your hand. That regards your actions, what you do. The hand is the agent of of affecting change. That they may be as frontlets between your eyes. That regards your perspective and your vision. Let's just summarize it this way. He says, you ought to love the Word of God. You ought to learn the Word of God. You ought to live the Word of God, and you ought to look at things through the prism of the Word of God. It ought to be the thing that sanctifies our life. Number two, we ought to saturate our home with the Word. He says in verse 19, Ye shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house, upon thy gates. 
we have in this, notice the who that's mentioned here. He says, you shall teach them your children. Now, I understand there are all kinds of homes that are different in their, in their nature and in their character today than there have typically been throughout human history. But typically, you have two groups of people in a home. You have the parents and the children. So if the parents are teaching it, and if the children are learning it, guess what's happening? Everybody in the home is engaging with the Word of God. In other words, we could say here that, that he says no one in the home should be exempt from the instruction of the Word of God. They should either be engaged in it or receiving it, but one way or another, they should be engaging with it. Notice the when. He says, when thou sittest in thine house. You say, well, preacher, I don't sit around a lot. Well, when thou walkest, by the way. Well, preacher, sometimes I'm not sitting and I'm not walking. Sometimes I lay down. Well, when thou liest down. You say, but preacher, sometimes I've been lying down for a while. I want, I want to get up. Well, that's good because he says, when thou risest up. So we see not only the who, but we see the when. When is the when? The when is all the time. I mean, it's we're getting into Dr. Seuss territory here. You know, on a train, on a plane, uh, in a box with a fox. It don't matter what's going on in your life. The Word of God ought to be central to everything that takes place. And then notice the where. He says, Thou shalt write them upon the doorpost of thine house and upon thy gate. What a beautiful passage. He's saying that the very foundation, we ought not be able to walk into the house without looking at the Word of God. We ought not be able to walk on the property without looking at the Word of God. He's saying our whole home should be saturated with the Word of God. Not only that, he tells us to secure our path with the Word. Verse 21. Now, why do we do all this? That your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them. I love this phrase, as the days of heaven upon the earth. We talk a lot about heaven. I'm thankful for heaven, man. I, heaven's real. Heaven's real. Heaven's real. I'm glad heaven's real. But can I tell you this? We don't have to wait till heaven to have victory. We don't have to wait till heaven to do something for God. We don't have to wait till heaven to enjoy our Christianity. If we'll be willing to live this life that God has commanded to us, we can enjoy that right now in our life. As the days of heaven upon the earth. Uh, some people live a life that is constantly perspective in nature. They look so far in the future, they miss the present and they forget the past. But God commands them here, don't forget what you've seen. There's great responsibility comes along with it. And don't forget the present, the right now that you can serve God. In. I'm thankful one of these days it's going to be heaven. But I'm thankful right now it can be as the days of heaven upon the earth. If I will live my... Hey, listen, that's what Paul was talking about. When, when Paul said, hey, listen, not as though I were already perfect, neither had already attained, but I pressed forward. He said, I pressed forward to the mark, the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He said, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. He said, one of these days this vile body will be made like unto his glorious body. One of these days I won't have to deal with this sin nature anymore. One of these days I'll get to enjoy perfect reality in the presence of God. But Paul said, I wait until I get to heaven to try to start living that way. He said, I'm not already perfect. I'm not already attained, but I follow after. He said, I'm trying to catch up. I'm trying to get to heaven as quick as I can by trying to get heaven in my life as much as I can. In other words, one of these days, Paul said, I'm going to be like Christ. I'll be like him for I'll see him as he is. But I ain't going to wait till I see him to try to be like him. I'm going to try to be like him now. I'm going to try to be what he desires for me to be. We ought to be pursuing with passion and purpose that life for us. And we ought to take heed in this matter of straying. How easy it'd be for you or I to stray out of the path and to live a life that is a shipwreck of the faith, that is a wasteland of spirituality. Instead, we ought to pursue a life that gives glory to God. Let's bow our heads together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I, I want you to have an opportunity to deal with the Lord. We preached on a lot of things tonight. <laughs> God could have dealt with you about a myriad of things, but whatever He dealt with you about, why don't you meet Him in this altar let Him have your heart. Let Him have your prayers. and Let Him have your will tonight. And allow God to do in you what would bring Him glory and would please Him. Father, I pray that You'd bless this invitation. I pray that Your people would do serious business with You tonight. Lord, we love You. And we ask it in Christ's name.